Welcome to another episode of Dispatches from Holly McKay. How are you doing today, Holly? Good, thank you. Oh, good. Today we're going to talk about a couple of articles you've recently written. One on the plight of Yazidi women who have been forced to undergo abortion. It's a tough story. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I just got back from Baghdad and it's really a very, uh, really searing scene. Um, it's been five years since ISIS was declared defeated in Iraq, but you sort of just the ramifications are really unfathomable all these years later. And, and part of that problem is because it, it has been a significant period of time and it's no longer in the headlines and other things have obviously taken over. Um, it's, it's almost worse for many of the Yazidis because they are continued, uh, continually displaced. There is still fighting going on in Sinjar, um, sort of between Iraqi army and Yazidi resistance forces. And then you've also got the PKK, you've also got Turkey. So there's a lot of elements still happening there and we don't really hear about it, but something that really just stung me was, um, this notion, and it's a very taboo topic, and that is forced abortions uh, with uh, Yazidi women who were obviously captured by ISIS fighters in 2014 and, and held as sex slaves and, and in many cases, um, you know, got pregnant. And uh, it, it's just horrific. So you're looking at a situation where the Yazidis um, oftentimes, you know, were subject to forced abortions um, whilst they were being held by ISIS. ISIS had doctors uh, that would do this, despite it being uh, very uh, haram in um, in the Islamic code. But also, since they've come back, if they've come back um, pregnant, they have been forced to also undergo abortions because the Yazidi sort of tribal leaders will accept the women but they won't accept these sort of uh, children that have ISIS fathers because Yazidis, um, it's a very closed religion. They do not accept converts and um, Yazidis sort of have to marry other Yazidis and, and, and have children with other Yazidis. And if that hasn't been the case, um, then they're sort of not permitted to, to bring that child into the world. Mm. So what happens to these women if they do bring a child into the world? Yeah, it's very horrific. So the women that, you know, either refused to have the abortion or had already had the child, um, they're really ostracized. They're not, you know, accepted back into the community. They can't go and live and be Yazidis. Um, and it's a very, very bleak scenario. They're sort of uh, struggling to survive in camps. Um, these children really don't have documents. They don't have, because in Iraq, you have to take the father's religion, um, which, you know, in the case of ISIS is Muslim, but that's, that's a really hard pill for Yazidis to swallow. So, um, it's sort of this horrible no man's land and there is sort of a, a little bit of, of psychological help, but there is little in the way of, of really supporting these women to, to try to get themselves, um, alive again after everything that they've been through. So it's, it's just, just a tragic, um, situation. And, and there are some NGOs that are trying to help, but again, when a conflict is no longer in the headlines, uh, that is very limited. So, um, you know, th- these women don't, don't have a future that, you know, they can sort of no longer be part of that Yazidi community. Um, they're not part of, uh, sort of the broader Iraq community. If you've got a child, especially an ISIS child, um, then you are very much ostracized. Uh, so it's this very, um, really bleak outlook and it's just, it's, it's, it's very painful for, for a lot of these women that have already just 
been to hell and back. And to think that they're still um, going through this is is really is really challenging. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think that probably means they're going to be suffering the rest of their lives for something that was never their fault. Absolutely, and um, you know, and, and in many cases too, I, I was told about. A lot of these women that still have, you know, Stockholm syndrome. So they're sort of trying to navigate a life coming back, you know, in a post-ISIS world, but at the same time, um, you know, have been so heavily brainwashed and, you know, and their children have so been heavily brainwashed too um, with that ISIS indoctrination. And that really also is a security threat to another level. So there's just, there's so many um, ramifications of this disaster and, it's quite hard to wrap your head around just the complexities of it. And, and this is really what war does. And this is the aftermath of war that we don't often hear about. And the complexities are just, they're endless. Yeah. And uh, are there particular NGOs that are specializing in this or is it just something that the NGOs NGOs run into? You know, there are local NGOs um, in particular that are kind of trying to focus on it, but but their hands are really tied too because um, there is not really a functioning government in Baghdad at the moment. Um, the camps are, are not particularly safe places, even for women. Uh, one of the workers there in Mosul, there's a, a large camp called Jeddah Camp. And, you know, women are kind of being bribed and, and, and forced, you know, in, in many cases by some of the Iraqi military security officers there, you know, to go sort of back into that, um, you know, to get food or to get access to, um, medical needs, you know, they're, they're being, um, having to, to pay bribes or, or pay with their bodies. And so it's just this re-traumatization that it's just incredibly, uh, jarring. And I, I just think, it's easy to forget about a war once it's uh, technically, you know, declared over as in this case, but, but these ramifications, they just last generations and that trauma, you can really feel that trauma that still exists. And it's, it's very, it's very painful. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, so that's, uh, the enduring pain of the cradle of civilization after being thrown out of the garden of Eden, which is kind of in the same place. It's a very sad story, Holly. Mm. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you're bringing it to light because it's, it's a, these women didn't do anything wrong. Um, no. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the other story that, that you wrote, which actually, uh, has, um, first world implications and having to do with privacy. Yeah, so this is a little bit of a, a gray area and often, you know, we see different things crop up in terms of um, knowing your digital rights or, or how, um, you know, a lot of our our rights have really slowly been sort of chipped away when it comes to um, privacy. And and in many cases, we, we kind of bring that on ourselves, perhaps unknowingly or just in trying to move a little bit with the technology. So I think that... Um, there's just so many things. Of course, we all know about things like Amazon's Alexa. We've got Apple Siri. Um, but it's also important to know that, that you've got things like Fitbit. And I believe Fitbit's been used in trials before to sort of certify where people have been located when a crime has been committed. And, and so there's just many things. Um, your vehicle identification number is another one that I found to be really, really interesting. Um, and that has been essentially morphed into a mechanism for tracking, um, to, you know, charging your bank accounts and, and, rem- and here's the real 
stunning part is remotely accessing and controlling your vehicle. And of course, that is presented to us in the name of safety and security and convenience. But what's really interesting is um, sort of a few weeks ago, there was reports that emerged from Ukraine um, that were sort of touting of the iconic John Deere's um, equipment. Um, you know, it had been stolen by the Russians um, and shipped to Chechnya. But when it got to Chechnya, it was rendered useless because the manufacturer leveraged a kill switch technology and that disabled the machine. So it was sort of presented, you know, as being this, you know, great, wonderful, feel-good story. But I think it's important to also look at the flip side because um, it's it's part of this sort of cyber control. And remember that this kill switch wasn't necessarily invented to stop Russians from taking Ukrainian farming equipment. Um, that was that was essentially um, that was invented to stop American farmers whenever needed. Um, and so, looking into this, John Deere bundled data. Uh, with the about the farmer and, and sold that to Monsanto, which of course you know is a very controversial um, large sort of company with a you know puts a lot of chemicals and things like that in our food. So there's just so many implications to often when we look at this technology and we think that it's um, you know all in in good favor, but but you know there is a flip side. And I think um, John Deere even explained in a copyright brief that farmers you know despite spending tens of thousands of dollars. Um, on these tractors uh, would never fully own the tractors outright because the software that uh, animates these tractors belongs to John Deere for the full term of the copyright, which is 90 years. Um, and the farmers, you know, merely license that code to them. So this is all just part of a, sort of, I think, a larger scheme of, of things of how slowly over time, I mean, technology is great, but it definitely comes with this flip side of um, often we are knowingly selling our data when we think we own something, we really don't. Um, and it's just, you know, it's kind of on every level. So, and uh, I just think it's really important that we educate ourselves on these things. Um, and we just sort of have an awareness of each time we, we uh, adopt technology, really what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah. Well, um, you know, that's a the stories have been going around for, years about the fact that you know teslas um can be uh, deactivated or even features removed when a when somebody buys a used one if they did not pay for that level of service from the car uh that that has happened in the past on the plus side there are also stories of, and i've used this in in the past of uh, when you forget your keys that uh, the manufacturer can actually unlock your car for you after you prove who you are. So um, there are positives and negatives uh, yeah. to it. I, th- I think the, the cautionary tale that you're sharing here is that we should be very much more aware about how we are interacting and adopting technology than in the past because it's, it pervades life so much now. It absolutely does. Um, and it's just, yeah, we, it, we have to pick and choose our battles. So, um, yeah, <laughs> tread with caution. We can choose your battles of, of what technology you want to to adopt, what you don't, and then also just recognizing that a lot of that is really out of our control now. You know, roads, bridges, elevators, and streets are all stuffed with cameras and facial recognition and automatic license plate readers, and um, you know that is that is the world that we live in now, and and it's only going to deepen. Yeah, well, I can tell you 400 miles away from home last week, 
I went through a toll gate uh, on a road and the little the video display on the toll gate said valid pass. Right on. It knew who it that car was 400 miles away from where it should have been. So um, it does pervade. Anyway, a good story, Holly, and uh, and and one that I believe many people should uh, continue to follow, learn, and and basically, there is a need for technological literacy uh, amongst ordinary people that um, needs to be highlighted. And thank you very much for writing that that piece. Yeah, and, and please that, I, uh, click on the links in the uh, newsletter, and you can read a lot more about both those topics. Very good. All right. Well, and with that. That's another update on dispatches from Holly McKay. Thank you very much, Holly, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Dennis.